السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, once again we gather for the monthly tafsir of the Holy Qur'an Having started from the final surah and moving backwards we've now reached surah number 98 which is surah al-bayyinah surah al-bayyinah is known by a few different names surah al-bayyinah Surah Al-Bariyah Surah Ahli Al-Kitab Surah Al-Infikaq Surah Lam Yakun and Surah Lam Yakun Al-Ladheena Kafaru So these are all different names by which this surah is identified. The more famous names are Surah Al-Bayyinah and Surah Lam Yakun Al-Ladheena Kafar. It's a surah that was revealed in the early days of the Prophet Wasallam's life in Medina after the Hijrah, possibly towards the, in the third or fourth year. I'll quickly read the <coughs> Surah and translate it, and then inshallah we'll discuss some aspects of the surah. لم يكن الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب والمشركين منفكين حتى تأتيهم البينة. Those who have disbelieved of the people of the book and the pagans. They were not to desist until the clear proof came to them. A messenger from Allah who recites to them purified scrolls. Fiha kutubun qayyimah Therein are upright scriptures, 
وما تفرق الذين اوتوا الكتاب الا من بعد ما جاءتهم البينه and those who were given the book did not differ except after that the clear proof had come to them وما امروا الا ليعبدوا الله And they had not been instructed, save that they worship Allah, مخلصين له الدين, making pure for him the religion. حنفاء, as upright monotheists, ويقيم الصلاة ويؤتوا الزكاة وذلك دين القيمة, and that they establish the prayer and give zakah, and this is the religion of the upright way. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ Indeed, those who have disbelieved of the people of the book and the pagans, فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا They will be in the fire of Jahannam, abiding therein forever. أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ شَرُّ الْبَرِيَّةِ These, they are the worst of creation. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ Indeed, those who have believed and who have done good deeds. أُولَٰئِكَ هُمْ خَيْرُ الْبَرِيَّةِ These, they are the best of creation. جَزَاؤُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ Their reward by their Lord. جَنَّاتُ عَدْلٍ Our gardens of Eden. تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ Flow beneath them. Rivers. خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا they shall abide therein forever. Radiyallahu anhum wa radu an. Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah. Thalika liman khashiya rabbah. This is for one who fears his Lord. Now, before we continue, that was just a simple translation of the surah. Before we continue, it's important to remember the background and the context of the revelation of these verses. They were revealed to the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. And in the earlier part of his life in Medina. And this surah reflected the condition of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, and their relationship with others at that time. So, keeping that in mind, let's have a closer look at the actual verses. Surah is a bit longer than most of the... Well, it's the longest surah that we have come to so far. So, I'll provide a summary towards the end, but also just as an indication... The surah speaks of a division between the believers and the unbelievers at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. It speaks of the history of various groups in Arabia 
who were expecting and awaiting a messenger from Allah and their condition and that <coughs> all indications were that they would have believed and should have believed but eventually when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam came they did not believe Surah also speaks of the nature of the revelation to the Prophet ﷺ and its connection and correlation with the scriptures of the past. And then finally, Surah ends with a declaration from Allah of the ultimate destiny, abode, and salvation or lack of salvation of those who believe and do good deeds or those who refuse to believe and do not abide by the standards of ethics and morality as set down by Allah. So, beginning from the first verse of the surah, Allah says, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ Those who disbelieve of the people of the book and the pagans. They were not ones to desist. Munfaqeen means to break away, to desist. I. The various factions that were in Arabia at the time, who were they? At the time of the coming of Rasulullah many of the Arabs were pagans, mushrikeen, polytheists. They worshipped many idols, many gods. Although they recognized Allah as the supreme creator and the highest deity, but along with belief in Allah as the creator, the supreme god, and the highest deity, they also believed in other lesser gods, whom they regarded as being equals to Allah, or conduits through which they would find a way to Allah. And they associated these other gods and idols with Allah. So many of the Arabs were pagans, polytheists, mushrikeen. There was also a sizable Jewish presence in Arabia, and this included both the descendants of those Jews who had fled from Jerusalem, from Palestine, following the Roman suppression of the Jewish people and the destruction of the temple. The Jews dispersed, especially after AD 70, and they went in different directions. Many of them travelled south and southeast into Arabia and settled in different places. There were many different places where they had settled. And over the centuries, these descendants of the original Jewish migrants adhered to their religion, but in language and in culture, 
they became Arabs. So ethnically, they were Jews. Religiously, they were Jews. But in every other way, in terms of life, lifestyle, culture, and even language, they became Arabs. The other group of Jews to be found in Arabia was the group of Jews that had actually, who were ethnically Arab also, but who had converted to Judaism. And again, that was a sizable portion of the population. In fact, most of, a great part of Yemen was actually Jewish, because approximately a century before, there was a very powerful Himyarite Jewish kingdom in the south of Arabia. And that was just a century before the coming of Islam. So there was a sizable Jewish presence in the south of Arabia and in various settlements scattered all over the Arabian Peninsula, uh, in Medina, in Khaybar, in uh, areas near Tabuk, in uh, places such as Wadi al-Qura, etc. And apart from the Jews, there was also a fair presence of Christian Arabs. Now these were actually native Arabs who had embraced Christianity. Again, they were, they were present in Yemen. So, strangely, Yemen and southern Arabia had more Jews and Christians, or one could say they were more influential and powerful rather than the pagan Arabs in, the, in southern Arabia. And Towards the north, northeast, and the northwest of Arabia, again, there was a very powerful uh, Christian presence. So many of the pagans were, sent, were present in central Arabia. I mention this because the common perception of Arabia is that the whole of Arabia was just filled with pagan Arabs, and there was a very small, minute and negligible presence of Jews and Christians in Arabia, which is incorrect. In fact, most of, many of the northern, northeastern, northwestern tribes were predominantly Christian, the Banu Ghassan, the Banu Taghlib, the Banu Lakhm, and uh, various Banu Taym, etc. There was a mixture. There were Christians, predominantly Christians, but there were also pagans. And I've mentioned before that towards the northeast, the many of the tribes were allied with towards the east and the northeast. Many of the Arab tribes were allied with Persia, and even though they were allied with Persia, they were still Christian. And towards the northwest and the north, you had the famously the Banu Ghassan. These were the Ghassanid Arabs who were, again, predominantly Christian, but they were allied with the Byzantine Roman Empire. That was the constitution and the setup of Arabia at the time. So in the surah, Allah addresses these particular groups, the pagans, the people of the book, namely the Jews and the Christians. Now, again, focusing on just these groups in Arabia, the pagans had no history of scripture, per se, although they were descendants of the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail, both they believed ethnically as well as religiously. But their scriptures and the teachings of the Prophet Ibrahim had been lost to them. So they were a people without any belief or history in scripture, in a revealed religion, 
in any belief of a one God, of life after death, etc. So they weren't, the pagans weren't actually expecting or awaiting a messenger or a messiah or a prophet or a leader to deliver them. But the Jews and the Christians both had, were people of the book, they had a history of revelation, of scripture, of belief in the messengers, of belief in monotheism, in the oneness of Allah, in life after death, in Jannah, Jahannam. <coughs> and especially the Jews, they had always predicted, prophesied, and taught, preached, and were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and the final messenger and prophet. Their, whose signs were and whose description was to be found in their books, in their scriptures. And the Christians also awaited the second coming of the Prophet Isa alayhi salam, or again a redeemer, a deliverer. Unfortunately, the condition of Arabia, which was a microcosm of the world at the time, and which reflected the moral condition of the world at the time, was pitiful. Condition Arabia was pitiful. And I've described this in various other talks about how the Arab, the state of the Arabs was, the state of the Arabia was, the state of the world was, before the arrival of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They were in such a pitiful and poor condition that it seemed as though there was no way of them being guided, of being delivered, of being removed from their condition, or of them changing their ways without the arrival of a major clear sign, the coming of the final messenger of Allah. And this is exactly what the verse describes here. لم يكن الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب والمشركين منفكين حتى تأتيهم البينة. Those who have disbelieved of the people of the book and the pagans, they were not ones to desist, منفكين to break away, to break loose, to come away from what, to desist from what, to break away from what, their corrupt condition. They weren't in a position to do so. They were unable to do so. They were not ones to be able to achieve this. Until the clear proof came to them. And what was that clear proof? The clear proof that would come to them and change them. Change their condition. Change their ways. Deliver them. Redeem them. What was that clear proof? It was none other than, and Allah mentions in the next verse, Rasulun min Allah, a messenger of Allah, yatlu suhfan mutahara, who would recite purified scrolls to them. Fiha kutubun qayyimah, therein are upright scriptures. This is a description of the Prophet ﷺ, the message that he brought, and its relationship with the teachings of the past. That great proof, that clear proof that would come and save and redeem not only Arabia, but the whole world. 
that one overwhelming, overriding proof was none other than the Messenger of Allah. A Messenger of Allah. Here Allah leaves it indefinite. A Messenger of Allah. And that Messenger of Allah was none other than Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the Prophet And he would come doing what? Yatlu suhufan mutahara. Reciting to them, relating to them, purified scrolls. Suhuf means scrolls, parchments. And this is a reflection of the Qur'an. It's interesting, throughout the Qur'an, Allah describes the Qur'an as a book, kitab. He speaks of it as suhuf, scrolls, parchments, and various other similar descriptions. And yet... During the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, and in fact till the end of his days, until he departed, the Qur'an was never found in the form of a bound book. But this is in a way a prophecy of what the Qur'an would become. A bound book, parchments, scrolls. Of course the Qur'an was recorded in different ways. But it was never to be found in a single bound book from cover to cover. And there's a reason for that. There's a wisdom in it, which I've explained on other occasions. Allah wanted the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and the Ummah of the Prophet to gain their religion and their teachings and their inspiration from the person and the example and the personality of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam more than just the words themselves. In fact, when he was in Mecca, the pagans demanded that he bring down a book for them between two covers. When he emigrated to Medina, the people of the book demanded the same. Bring down a book for us from the heavens. So the people of Mecca demanded a book bound by covers. The people of Medina demanded a book bound by covers. And despite the demands of both these cities, the principal inhabitations of the Prophet ﷺ and the principal audiences of his message, Allah resolutely refused to reveal a book bound by covers. He gave the Prophet ﷺ an oral message and that is the tradition of Islam. So he came, a messenger will come from Allah, Rasulun min Allah, yitlu suhafan mutahara. Allah says here, reciting purified scrolls. But he wouldn't actually recite from scrolls or from books or even from parchments or from a written record. He was unlettered. But this is what would become of the Qur'an. فِيهَا كُتُبٌ قَيِّمَةٌ Therein, i.e. in this recital, in this relating of the Prophet ﷺ, in this book that he would recite from scrolls, purified scrolls. فِيهَا كُتُبٌ قَيِّمَةٌ There are upright scriptures. Now, what's the meaning of Upright scriptures. Obviously, kutub, as many of you will know, is the plural of kitab, which means book. Here, it just means books. But this is 
a later restriction of the word kitab to the common concept of a book. Originally, kitab just meant anything written. So a normal letter was called a kitab. And it's referred to as such in the Qur'an. So anything that was written, anything, absolutely anything, even a few words, would be called a kitab. A letter would be called a kitab. A written note, a chit, would be called a kitab. A book would be called a kitab. A single page would be called a kitab. And therefore the plural books here, fiha kutubun qayyimah, in these purified scrolls, are upright books. Now, many books in the Qur'an, well, it's simple. Each surah can be regarded as a book. But there's a more important meaning here. Fiha kutubun qayyimah, and that's why I translated it as therein are upright scriptures. All the earlier scriptures given to the messengers of Allah, the Qur'an contains the same message, the same lessons, and the same wisdom. So all the wisdom of the earlier scriptures given to the many different messengers, that wisdom is to be found in one place in the Qur'an. And the Qur'an is a reflection of the earlier scriptures. And what's the nature of these scriptures? Qayyimah. They are upright. They are upright. And indeed, that was the teaching of all of the prophets of Allah In fact, the Messenger of Allah was told, Declare, قُلْ مَا كُنْتُ بِدْعًا مِّنَ الرُّسْلِ Say, I am not an innovator of the messengers. Meaning, I have not come with anything radically different or new than what all of the former messengers and prophets of Allah brought. In essence, our message is the, t- is the same. Our teachings are the same. Individual details with finer points of diet and hygiene and dress, etc. may differ slightly. But in essence, the core message, the core teachings, the core ethics and morality are all the same. They are universal. So the Prophet ﷺ never brought anything new. And this is why the Qur'an is a reflection of the earlier scriptures. So the clear proof that would come and deliver the people of Arabia, and in fact the whole world, from their pitiful plight and condition, would be a messenger of Allah who would recite purified scrolls to them, which contained upright scriptures. And indeed that sign did arrive, that messenger did come, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Quran, furthermore, I mentioned the people of the book. Now who were the people of the book? Principally the people of the book were the Jews and the Christians who had a history. Surprisingly though, later The Magians and the Zoroastrians were all, the Persians were also treated as people of the book. The 
Quran then says in the fourth verse, وَمَا تَفَرَّقَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَةِ This is a reflection of what actually happened when the Prophet ﷺ did arrive, when the clear proof came, what happened. Unfortunately, the people of the book did not believe now here, the, the verse doesn't speak of the pagans. It says, and the people of the book did not differ. It doesn't mention anything about the pagans in this fourth verse. For the simple reason, as I indicated at the very beginning, that the pagans weren't awaiting a messenger. They weren't expecting a messiah, a final redeemer, a deliverer. They weren't. They had no history, and therefore they had no expectation. But the Jews and the Christians had a whole history of scripture, of teachings, of prophets, of epistles, of messengers, of missionaries. They had a history of belief in monotheism, in Allah, in the oneness of Allah, in Jannah, in Jahannam, in life after death. And they were all actually awaiting a final redeemer, a messenger, a messiah. And especially the Jews. The Jews were highly regarded by the pagans, since they had a history of writing and reading and scripture. The pagans were predominantly unlettered. But the Jews, regardless of whether they were ethnically Jewish, but later by culture and language had become Arab, or they were Arab converts to Judaism. The elite amongst the Jews, not all of them, but the elite amongst the Jews, had retained a history of reading and writing Hebrew scriptures. So they were bilingual, they had retained uh, Hebrew as a language of scripture and reading and writing and study, just like Muslims all over the world, regardless of where they travel. The not all Muslims, but at least the learned and scholars amongst them, they retain whatever their local custom and local language, they retain the Arabic language uh, by way of study and preaching and teaching and scholarship. So similarly, the Arab, the Jews, although they were Arabs in every way, in language and culture, religiously they were Jews. But, and therefore they had still retained a history of writing, reading and scholarship, especially of the uh, Jewish and Hebrew scriptures. So the Arabs looked up to them. They regarded them highly for their learning. And on many occasions the pagan Arabs would actually refer to the Jews. And after the coming of the Prophet wasallam, some of the pagan Arabs would regularly refer to the Jews, as we learn from the traditions, about their interaction with the Prophet ﷺ. So they would ask them that, do you, and in, and in fact, before the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ, the Jews would regularly tell the Arabs of the arrival of a final messenger. And in their common disputes, when the Jews were overwhelmed, by the Arabs in, on various occasions, 
they would remind them that today you may outnumber us, you may be numerically superior and more powerful, and you may have subjugated us. Not entirely, they weren't oppressed, but in some of their battles, when the Arabs were superior, or sometimes in their common disputes, the Jews would constantly remind the Arabs that a time will come, which is not far off, when the final messenger and the Messiah will arrive. And he will lead us, and we will overwhelm you, we will subjugate you. And that's referred to in the Quran. In the Quran that they would seek victory, they would seek victory and deliverance through this, through this final messenger whom they were expecting. And who would they seek victory over? Over the, those who had disbelieved, meaning the pagans. So the Jews were almost in a state of readiness and alertness for the arrival of the final messenger of Allah. And that's mentioned in another verse of the Quran. الذين يتبعون الرسول النبي الأمي الذي يجدونه مكتوبا عندهم في التوراة والإنجيل. That those who follow the unlettered messenger and prophet, whom they find recorded and written of and spoken of in the Torah and in the Injil, in the Torah and in the Gospel. Who was that? None other than the Prophet ﷺ. His description, his features, his teachings, his ways. All of that was known to the scholars and the leaders and the religious amongst the Jews and the Christians. And especially the Jews in Arabia. And there was constant dialogue and discussion between the pagans of Mecca and the Jews of Medina. Eventually when the Prophet ﷺ did arrive, what happened? And he emigrated to Medina. The local tribes refused to believe, the local Jewish tribes, with the exception of a few, refused to believe in him. They refused to accept him as a final messenger. And the Quran speaks of this on many different occasions. And this is what the verse refers to here. In fact, in another verse, Allah says, "In the Din عند in Surah Al Imran, in the Din عند Allah Islam, وما اختلف الذين أوتوا الكتاب إلا من بعد ما جاءهم العلم بغيا بينهم." Indeed, the religion by Allah or in the view of Allah before Allah is Islam, and those who were given the book did not differ, except after knowledge came to them. بغيا بينهم. Out of spite on their part, or out of transgression on their part, i.e., they knew the reality of the Prophet In fact, in another verse of the Quran, يعرفونه كما يعرفون أبناءهم. They know him, i.e., the Prophet of Allah, as well as they know their own children. They knew his description. They knew the reality of the Prophet But out of spite, in envy, حسد من عند أنفسهم من بعد ما تبين لهم الحق 
In another verse of the Quran, Allah says, speaking of them, that they refused to believe and they rejected the Prophet ﷺ as a messenger, حَسَدٌ مِنْ عِنْدِ أَنفُسِهِمْ Out of envy on their part. مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الْحَقِّ even after the truth had become clear and manifest to them. So for political reasons, for personal reasons, out of hasad, envy, and in spite, and in rebellion, they rejected the Prophet ﷺ, despite knowing the truthfulness of his message. Abdullah ibn Salam was a Jewish rabbi. A number did believe without doubt. Abdullah ibn Salam radiyallahu anhu, Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu anhu, whose beautiful story I've related before. Abdullah ibn Salam radiyallahu anhu was a Jewish rabbi. And what was his story? He awaited the, the coming of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He closely observed the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam after his arrival in Medina. And Eventually he believed in him. And before he went to the Prophet ﷺ and declared his Islam, and after he embraced, he told the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, my people do not know of my embracing your religion, even though he was a Jewish rabbi. Therefore, before you disclose it to them or before they become aware of it, Question them about me. Ask them about me. So the Prophet ﷺ on one occasion spoke to them and said to them, How is Abdullah ibn Salam amongst you? What do you think of him? What's his position amongst you? So the words are, He is our rabbi, the son of a rabbi. Our master, the son of our master. The best amongst us, the son of the best amongst us. Because he came from a line of scholars and rabbis. So the Prophet ﷺ declared to them that, well, he has embraced religion. So they said, he is the worst amongst the son of the worst. And then Abdullah ibn Salam radiallahu anhu came. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, this is why I said to you, before you declare to them that I have embraced your religion, question them about me. And the reason for the questioning was that indeed they did regard him as being their rabbi, son of, their, son of a leading rabbi, their scholar, son of a leading scholar, their master, son of the, one of their leaders, and the best amongst them, son of one of the best amongst them. And if that was the case... They only declared him to be otherwise when they learnt that he had changed his religion and his ways and embraced the Prophet ﷺ. Another famous rabbi, well, not as famous as Abdullah ibn Salam radiyallahu an, but the other rabbi was Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu an, and I've related his story on a number of occasions. We don't have time to go into that now, but refer to some of the earlier talks that I've given. Zayd ibn in summary, in short, Zayd ibn was a rabbi. He says that before the arrival of the Prophet, when I heard about the coming of Rasulullah wasallam, I and I observed him closely, 
I found in him every sign and every description mentioned in our scriptures. Except two. And the two were that never is anyone ignorant towards him except that he faces that ignorance and that insolence with forbearance and patience and wisdom. And the other side, and the more someone is ignorant towards him, the more patient and forbearing he is. And the other side is that he does not meet evil with evil, rather he meets evil with good. So he said, I saw every other sign in him except these two. So I wanted to test it. So on one occasion, I was observing him, and he came out of his house with Ali radiyallahu anhu. And a rider from amongst the Bedouin came and said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, in my region there is a famine, and, well, there is shortage of food, and the people have just embraced and they are, I fear that in their despair, they may turn away from religion. So, O Messenger of Allah, is there any way that we can assist them? Do you have anything? So the Prophet ﷺ turned to Ali radiallahu anh and said to him that, are there, uh, do we have any of the produce from such and such an orchard? So Ali radiallahu anh said, no, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, then he asked about, uh, so he said, is there any produce, i.e. dates left from that orchard? He said, no. So Zayd ibn Su'ina says, then I realized that this is my opportunity. So I seized the opportunity and I came forward. And I said, oh Muhammad, I am willing to give you money now. This is known as salam, the bayr salam, where basically you pay up front and expect the produce or the goods afterwards. So he said that, I will give you money now, I'll make the payments now. And at this fixed period, when the, at the time of the harvest, you can deliver the dates to me. So, from such and such an orchard. So the Prophet wasallam said, I, I'll accept, but not with the, not, not from this specific orchard, but I will give you your dates. So they agreed. So Zayd ibn Su'anna took out the gold sovereigns and gave them to the Prophet ﷺ and they fixed a term by which the Prophet ﷺ would deliver the dates to him. And the Prophet ﷺ then gave the money to uh, the Bedouin and said, make use of this and purchase foodstuff for these people. Zayd ibn Su'anna says, I waited till the end of the term, but not right till the end. Actually, a few days before the end of the term, I went to the Prophet And he was returning from a funeral. And he had many of his companions around him. So in front of everyone, even though the term had not come to an end, I walked up to him and I actually grabbed him by the collar. And I twisted the collar and pushed him. And I said, oh Muhammad, 
Where is my money? Where, where is my debt? Repay me. And then he said, again, he added insult to injury by saying that, Muhammad, I know you, all you sons of Abdul Muttalib, your clan of Abdul Muttalib, you are notorious for defaulting on your payments. So pay me. Umar radiallahu anhu was standing there. So Zayd ibn Su'anna says, he himself, and in fact, this story is also narrated by Abdullah ibn Salam radiallahu So he narrates the story himself, and Abdullah ibn Salam, the other Jewish rabbi, relates the story of this rabbi. So he said, Umar radiallahu anhu was standing close by him. When he saw, when the companion saw what he was doing, they were enraged. And Umar radiallahu anhu shouted and said to him, If it wasn't for the Messenger of Allah, I would split your skull into two. He said, Ya Adullahu, enemy of Allah, if it wasn't for the Messenger of Allah, I would split your skull into two. So the Prophet Zayd ibn Su'anna says, All the while, no matter what I did, and despite the threats of Umar radiallahu anhu, the Prophet ﷺ, he did not react. The most he did, he was staring at Umar and then he smiled. And then he said, Oh Umar, something other than this. Both he and I need something other than this. What we require from you is not this, but for you to say to me, repay his debt. And for you to say to him, ask for your due and your right in a better manner. This is what we both require from you. Something other than this, O Umar ibn al-Khattab. Then the Prophet ﷺ said that you will, you will receive your produce. So he, said, he promised him and then he went. Prophet ﷺ turned to Umar ibn al-Khattab and said, go, go to such and such a place and repay him. I'm summarizing the story. Repay him. And then he said that... Give him 20 sar extra. Why? In compensation for you having terrified him. <laughs> so Umar radiallahu anhu went and he delivered the goods to him and then he gave him extra dates. When he delivered the extra dates to him, 20 sar, if I remember correctly, each sar is about 3.5 kilograms. So Zayd ibn Su'anna said, what's this? So Umar radiallahu anhu said, the Prophet sallallahu instructed me to give you these extra dates as compensation for me having threatened you and terrified you. So Zayd ibn Su'anna accepted. Then he said to Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu he said, oh Umar, do you know who I am? Now Umar radiallahu obviously by sight, he didn't know who he was. So he said, no. So he said, I am Zayd. So he said, which Zayd? So he said, I am Zayd ibn Su'anna. So Umar radiallahu anhu said, he had heard of him. He didn't know him personally, but he had heard of him. He said, Zayd ibn Su'anna, the rabbi? He said, yes. So he said, a person such as you, of that standing, learning and caliber, how could someone like you speak to the Messenger of Allah in that rude, insolent manner? So Zayd ibn Su'anah said, O oh Umar, I had studied the scriptures and the person of Rasulullah wasallam, and I had found every description of him to be true, except for two. 
which I had not yet discovered. And he mentioned the two, which is that the more ignorance that is shown to him, the more he responds with forbearance, patience and wisdom. And that he does not repel or requite evil with evil. Rather, he repels and requites evil with good. So he said, I, I wanted to test him. And I have discovered that even these two signs are to be found in him. O Umar, I declare that there is no God except Allah, and that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is the Prophet and the Messenger of Allah. And said, take me to him. And he said, O Umar, I also make you a witness that half of my wealth I give as charity to the poor amongst the Muslims. So anyway, uh, that is the story of Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu anhu. He did not live for long because he actually then fought and participated in one of the battles with the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he was martyred. But the, this is, these are just the two stories of two rabbis, Abdullah ibn Salam and Zayd ibn Su'unnah radiyallahu anhuma. And there were others also, but these were the ones who acted on the teachings and the prophecies of their scripture. Others, as the Qur'an states, refused. And this is what this, four, this fifth verse refers to. Actually, the fourth verse. And those who were given the book did not differ, or did, they did not disperse, except after the clear proof had come to them. So the clear proof was Rasulullah wasallam. They saw him. They witnessed him. They observed him. They saw the descriptions of him being fulfilled. And yet, as the Qur'an itself says, حَسَدًا مِنْ عِنْدِ أَنفُسِهِمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الْحَقِّ بَغْيًا Out of spite, in transgression and rebellion, out of envy. Why? Why out of envy? Why in transgression? Why in rebellion? Why in spite? Because he was not of them. He was from the Arabs. And that's what the Qur'an clearly states in other verses. So, they refused. And this is what the verse refers to. Then the verse say, the Qur'an says, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءُ وَيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةُ وَيُؤْتُوا الزَّكَاةُ وَذَلِكَ دِينُ الْقَيِّمَةُ وَمَا أُمِرُوا Even though, meaning why should they refuse to believe in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Why? Even though they were never instru- even though they were not instructed or commanded, except that they believe in Allah, sorry, they worship Allah, مخلصين له الدين, making pure for him the religion. Hanafa as upright monotheists. And they were not instructed, or ever commanded to do anything except establish salah and give zakah. What does this verse mean? All it simply say, all it says is simply, that there was no reason for those who were awaiting the arrival of the Messenger wasallam, who were expecting him, and then who finally saw him, met him, received him, received his message. There was no reason for them to disbelieve in him or to reject him, because he did not come with anything new or innovative. 
It was not a departure from their own teachings. He came to rectify. The Jews were expecting him. The Christians were expecting him. And when Allah says, فِي التَّوْرَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ Doesn't the Qur'an say in Surah Al-Saf, وَإِذْ قَالَ عِيسَ بْنُ مَرْيَمَ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيَّ مِنَ التَّوْرَاةِ وَمُبَشِّرًا بِرَسُولٍ يَأْتِي مِنْ بَعْدِ اسْمُهُ أَحْمَدِ And remember, when Isa the son of Mary, when Isa the son of Maryam, alayhim salam said, O Banu Israel, indeed I am Allah's messenger to you. I come to ratify and to affirm that Torah, which is before me. And I come as a giver and a bearer of glad tidings. Of one, of a messenger to come after me, whose name will be Ahmed. So, both these groups expected the arrival of the final messenger. They were awaiting his arrival. They had the signs, they had the scriptures, they had the prophecies. And when he came, there was no reason for them to disbelieve in him or to reject him. Especially since he fulfilled all their prophecies. He fulfilled the requirements, the conditions, and the descriptions in the scriptures. And more so, since none of his teachings were contrary or a departure to what they had been instructed and commanded by Allah and his messengers in their earlier scriptures. And the essence of their Scriptures was also the following, which is, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا They were never instructed except to لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهِ To worship Allah, مُخْلِسِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ Making pure for him the religion. To avoid paganism, polytheism, associate, uh, associating other gods, and making partners and equals of other gods to Allah. This is a common teaching of all the religions. حُنَفَاء to do so and to live as upright monotheists. Hanafa is a plural of Hanif. And Ibrahim alayhi salam, the Prophet of Allah, has been described as Hanif in the Quran. And before the coming of the Prophet wasallam, the enlightened ones amongst the Arabs had also shunned idolatry and their corrupt ways. And these these were also known as the Hunafa. There was a group of Hunafa even before the declaration of Islam by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this was the teaching of all the messengers to their peoples. Further, the Quran says they were never instructed except to worship Allah, making religion pure for him as upright monotheists. And they were never instructed except to establish salah and to give zakah. Of course, the details and the description and the manner of salah, of prayer, differed in the different religions. But whatever the movements and the recitals and the postures and the details of these individuals' forms of prayer, in essence, it was prayer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to give zakah, to give charity. These are the instructions of all the religions. The Quran then ends this verse by saying, And this is the religion of the upright way. For those of you who know Arabic, what this means is, This is the religion of the upright way, of the upright tradition. 
Then the Quran ends by saying, what will happen? What will be the abode? What is the Quranic declaration of the salvation or lack thereof of the people in relation to the Prophet Those in Arabia at the time who awaited the coming of the Messenger of Allah, who witnessed his arrival and then still refused to believe in him. What is their description? And what is the Quran promising them? And those who did accept the Prophet what is the Quran promising them? And remember, primarily, the verse speaks of those who were around the Prophet at that time and his relationship with them. So, and it's speaking of the same people, those who received him and accepted him, or those who rejected him and opposed him. Indeed, those who disbelieve from the people of the book and the pagans, they are in the fire of Jahannam, residing therein forever. These, they are the worst of creation. And before I continue, uh, it says here, the worst of creation. A very strong and harsh comment. But understand it. Allah says elsewhere in the Quran, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمُ وَحَمَلْنَاهُمْ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ وَرْزَقْنَاهُمْ مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَفَضَّلْنَاهُمْ عَلَى كَثِيرٍ مِّمَّنْ خَلَقْنَا تَفْضِيلًا Allah says, indeed we have honored the sons of Adam. And we have carried them on land and on sea. And we have bestowed in sustenance upon them of good and pure things. And we have given them privilege and preference and superiority over much of what we have created. So man, humans, regardless of their faith, of their belief, have been honoured by Allah, by the very text and declaration of the Qur'an. And I've mentioned this before as well. That Allah has created beasts and animals. They are part of Allah's creation. And Allah has created angels. These are the best of Allah's creation. The angels, Allah has created them in such a way that they do not change. They undergo no transformation, no change, no fluctuation. They are as they are. There is no rise or fall. They are as they are. Allah says, they do not disobey Allah in His commandments to them. And they do as they are instructed by Allah. And the angels have been created from light, from nur. And Allah has fused them with intelligence, with wisdom, high intelligence. These are the angels. At the other end of the spectrum, Allah has created the beasts and the birds. Now these beasts, in a similar way, they have been, well, they have been created from the dust of the earth. Their origin is not celestial. Ultimately, well, ultimately it is, but 
their origin, in essence, is not celestial. It's earthly. They have been created from the dust of the earth. And the animals and beasts are such that they haven't been fused with high intelligence. They haven't been created from light. But in a similar way to the angels, they undergo no change. Animals are as they are. They are as they are. Beasts will be beasts. Animals will be animals. Angels are angels. The angels do not fall. And the animals do not rise. But in between, Allah has created man. And in man we find both qualities. And both sets of properties. Like the angels, Allah has fused man with higher intelligence. With grace. With goodness and greatness. But at the same time, and Allah has created man with a certain connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, just like the angels have a connection with Allah. On the other hand, at the same time, humans also have many bestial, animalistic qualities. The angels do not. Animals eat drink for survival and they procreate and they rest angels do not rest they not they do not eat they do not drink they have no reason or cause or desire or inclination to any of these things or procreation they are very different but man lies in between he shares many qualities and characteristics with the angels but at the same time he also shares many needs and requirements and characteristics of the beasts. Man has been fused with high intelligence, grace, and enlightenment. But at the same time, he is bogged down and shackled by his bodily needs of food, drink, and rest. And at the same time, a need as well as an inclination and desire for procreation and all of these things. Gluttony. So what does man do? Man, unlike the angels and the beasts, changes undergoes transformation, fluctuates, man rises and falls. If man behaves, he can rise to the heights of the angels. If man misbehaves, he can sink to the depths of bestiality. That's why the Quran says, they, These people are like cattle, i.e. a reference to animals. Nay, they are worse. Someone who was given knowledge, and refuse to act on his knowledge, Allah says of him, فَمَثَلُهُ كَمَثَلِ الْكَلْبِ إِن تَحْمِلْ عَلَيْهِ يَلْهَثْ أَوْ تَتْرُكْهُ يَلْهَثْ His example, his, like, his, like, his likeness is that of a dog. If you attack the dog, it still pants and lulls its tongue. If you leave the dog alone, it still pants and lulls its tongue. In another verse, a whole group of people who were given knowledge, but failed and refused to act on it, Allah says of them, كَمَثَلِ الْحِمَارِ يَحْمِلُ أَسْفَارًا like a donkey carrying volumes and tones on its back. So man can rise or fall. This is why for 11 months of the year we follow our desires. We fulfill the needs of our bodies, of eating, drinking and fulfilling our desires. So for one month at least Allah imposes on us the fast. And the fast 
checks and addresses these very same things. The, the, the same things that shackle us, imprison us, and keep us bogged down, and prevent us from rising. In the month of Ramadan, these are the very things that are curbed and prevented. We can't eat, we can't drink, and we can't fulfill our bodily desires. In the hope that we divert attention away from the body to the spirit, and hopefully rise. That is a month of spirituality. That is a month of rising. So man has the ability to rise or to fall. And when man rises and behaves, he exhibits angelic qualities. So much so that Allah boasts of them to the angels, that these are my servants. And when man misbehaves, not only does Allah describe him, as an animal, or these people as animals. Human beings describe each other as animals. And when a human being behaves, we describe each other as saintly, as angelic. So this, we have to understand this verse in that context. By nature, every human being is honoured. This is why the flesh of humans is haram. We have been instructed and commanded to behave in a certain way towards each other. To honour man. But in terms of morality, in terms of spirituality, when a person rises, he can rise to the height of the angels. When he falls, he can fall to the depths, the sunken depths of animals and beasts. It's in this context that Allah says, These, they are the worst of creation. Then the verse say the Quran says in Ladina Amanu Amidu Salihat, indeed those who believe and who have done good deeds, Ulaikahum Khairul Bariya, these they are the best of creation. So much so that they won't sink far from sinking to the depths of the animals or even below. They rise to the heights of the angels. And here there's a famous discussion. Are angels better? Or humans better? There are differing opinions amongst the scholars. And the uh, and we have to remember one thing. Ultimately the angels are of a completely different species, if I can use a word. They're a different entity altogether. Human beings are different species. But still, the angels are ultimately from the creation of Allah. So when the verse says, These, they are the best of creation, i.e. those who believe and who do good deeds. Are they better than the creation of the angels? The, there are differences of opinion amongst the scholars, but there is one opinion which is quite agreeable to the majority of the scholars, which encompasses the the best opinions of the scholars, and it's quite simply this. The khawas, the elite of the humans, are better than the elite of the angels. The elite, the, the elite of the angels are better than the commoners of the mu'mini. So for instance, 
The Anbiya alayhimussalam, they are the elite of the angels. They are greater than even the elite of the angels. So the elite of the humans, the prophets of Allah salam, are better than the elite even of the angels. But the elite of the angels, the famous great angels of Allah, they are better than the other humans. Now, who actually fits into each group, it's not something for us to delve in. But, in general, yes, some humans, those of the mu'mineen and those who do good deeds, can be better than the angels. Who is, who isn't, Allah knows best. Jazā'uhum inda rabbihim. Allah says, indeed, those who believe and who have done good deeds, they are the best. These, they are the best of creation. Jazā'uhum inda rabbihim. Their reward by their Lord is what? Jannatu Adn, the gardens of Eden. Tajri min al-anhār. Beneath which rivers shall flow. Khalidina fiha abada. Therein they shall reside forever. Radiyallahu anhum wa anhum. Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah. Remember, I did say we have to understand this in the context. So primarily, these verses refer, refer to the companions. This reward is for one who fears his Lord. So simple belief is not sufficient. But along with belief, there should be taqwa and the khashya and the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Undoubtedly, there's much more that can be said about every part of this surah. But this is a simple translation and summary placed in this context of the surah of Surah Al-Bayyinah. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Before I end, just wanted to mention, the tafsir of the Qur'an is such that one could, the lessons and the morals and the wisdoms of the Qur'an from each word and verse are boundless and limitless and indeed one could spend an inordinate amount of time even on just one single verse of the Quran the idea is not to discuss everything but to provide a simple general summary and the apparent meaning of the verses in the hope that at least we are able to, to some degree, understand and appreciate what we are reading, especially with these shorter surahs towards the end of the Qur'an, when we hear them in recitation of salah, or when we read them ourselves. I pray that Allah enables us to understand and act on them. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.